Suppose you had to believe in someone or something uh, that you didn't want to believe in in order to get into heaven. Now, just to kind of frame that a little bit differently, think through a couple of names. I'm going to give you two names, and I'm pretty sure at least 90% of people in the U.S., maybe even higher than that, um, at least 90% will respond negatively to one of these names. Okay, so, so I'll throw them out there and see what you think. Okay, the first one's Barack Obama. Okay, and you don't have to give a physical appearance of some kind, but, you know, just, okay, you can just think internally. Positive, negative, what's your vibe? Okay, the second one, Donald Trump. Okay. There's, there's a, a negative response somewhat, because almost it's guaranteed that, that there are people in our country that don't like both of those names. And there are a few that would say, I like one of them, but not the other. But it's very rare to find someone who would say, I like both of those, right? So now you've got this, this person and their views and their values in your mind. Now, pick the one that you just don't like, can't stand, whatever it may be, the views, the person, whatever it is, pick that person. And if somebody came and said to you, all right, now you have to believe in that person and you have to believe everything they stand for in order to go to heaven, what would you say? It'd be difficult, wouldn't it? Some of you say there's not a chance. Now let's rewind the clock, go back 2,000 years ago, and ask this question. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were out there teaching people about how they could know God, how they could have eternal life, and they had a system that they had built, and it was a lot based on works, and they were, they were teaching from the Old Testament that there was a Messiah to come, and that Messiah was going to come onto the scene, but when He comes onto the scene, people needed to believe, well, from their point of view, that He was going to be the next David. People needed to see that. In fact, that's what they thought. He was going to rule into the world, and he was going to come into the world, and he was going to come in and, and, and reestablish Israel as the great and wonderful kingdom that it once was. And so they're out there preaching this, they're out there teaching this, and people were saying, yeah, that's what we're looking for in the Messiah. And then this Jesus shows up. And this Jesus who was born of a virgin, okay, yeah, we go back to the Old Testament, you see that a little bit, but that's still hard to accept, and born of this guy named Joseph, who was just a carpenter. He wasn't a prominent family. He wasn't a wealthy family. He wasn't a priest or anything like that. I mean, he was just, he was just a carpenter. And so we're supposed to believe in this guy who, who doesn't have a, much of a lineage. Yeah, it goes back all the way to David. But there are a lot of people that could claim that. But here's this guy, Jesus. And then he comes onto the scene, and he never, he never tries to gain an army he just has a few of these disciples that are walking around. They're fishermen, after all. What do they know about fighting a fight and reestablishing a kingdom? And then he starts teaching things. And as he starts teaching things, he's teaching things like, well, you need to, to be poor and mourn and look at yourself and realize that you're not great and you're not good and you're not God and that there is something wrong and you need to be fixed. And they're starting to say, wait a minute, we don't like this guy and what he, has to, what he stands for. And so people began to reject what Jesus had to say. And it got to a point where the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they were able to take a group of people and they were able to try him and put him through the court system and then say, okay, you're going to be executed. And so they put him on a cross. And he hung there and he died. He died. 
And while he was on there, he said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and the religious leaders were saying, well, how does he have that kind of authority? And so they were challenging all those types of things. And then he, he dies, he goes to this, this grave. We just saw pictures of it, right? A video of it, and he's buried in that tomb. And then three days later, the stone rolls away, and there were stories. I mean, the, the Pharisees had to deal with that in some way. So they made up stories like, oh, maybe the disciples went in there, and they rolled the stone away, or somebody stole his body or something like that. But, but there's no evidence to suggest that at all. In fact, there's great evidence to just suggest that God... With this help of angels and God by his own power, he, he rolled the stone away and Jesus comes to life with no help from any person on the earth. He comes to life and he goes around and he starts teaching people again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. For a lot of people, they couldn't do it. Much like that video just showed. Can't do it. I'm, I'm clinging, I'm holding on to too many things that are on this earth. Th- those things are important to me. And Jesus says, you need to let go of that. You need to believe in me. And people are saying, no, we can't, we can't, because, because this world is too important. What I have is too important. I can't let go of it and follow this great and mighty God. That's a struggle that people have had for the last 2,000 years. But the gospel and the story of Jesus Christ goes on and on. And that's what you're going to hear today. You're going to hear the resurrection. Yes, Jesus Christ came to life, but he came to life for a reason. He came to life because people are messed up and we have sin in our lives and we need to deal with it. And there's only one person who can deal with it, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. There's some great verses out there, like this one, 1 Corinthians. This is actually a passage, not just a verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, it says this. Now, I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. And this is a guy named Paul. He's talking to, to a church that he had started in Corinth. He says, I preach this message to you. You received it on which you have taken your stand. Okay, this is what you're cemented in and by which you are being saved. So it's a process. I mean, there's a time when people accept Jesus Christ and they're saved, but then there's a process where we become more like Christ. And so he's saying you're being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you unless you believed in vain. First century, there were Christians who made a profession of faith and still didn't believe. The Bible talks about a kind of a two-step process. It says that if you need to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who will say with their mouth, yes, I believe that. That sounds good. All right, I'll fall in line with that thinking, that reasoning, that, that teaching. But they never believe it in their heart. And that's what he points to here. Unless you believed in vain, unless you just, it was empty words. He goes on, he says, for I passed on to you the most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Our sins, the things, uh, disobedience to God, some will say, the things that we can't measure up to. God is a holy God. There's no way anybody in this room can be perfect like God is. We just don't measure up to that. Okay, so we have sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the Twelve. And then it goes on talking about how he appeared to more than that. He appeared to 500 witnesses. Now, if you've believed that, then you know that story, and you say, yes, that's what I cling to. That's, that's what I know to be the gospel. If you don't believe that, you may be run, struggling and going, I don't know that I can believe that. That's a really hard pill to swallow. That's a really difficult thing to accept. 
One, you have to accept, one, that you're not perfect and you're not good and that you need a Savior. Two, you have to accept that Jesus Christ is the Savior, this guy that walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And not only is he the Savior, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he's in heaven today. And if you accept that, then you also go to this verse, you have been raised with Christ. Here's a phenomenal teaching and understanding in Scripture. You need to understand this because I think it's so powerful. This, very, this verse right here, you have been raised with Christ. If you've placed your faith in Christ, then you are united with Christ. That means when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you died with him through faith. You didn't hang on that cross, literally, but you died with him in faith. And all the wrath was poured out, all God's wrath for sin was poured out upon his son, Jesus Christ. And we've been placed into Christ. And so he dies, and we have this awesome picture. It's in Romans 6, and we do it with baptism, where we show people have, have died to sin through Christ. And then they come up out of the water, or like Christ comes out of of the grave, we come into this new life because in Christ we've been raised to life. We're no longer dead to sin. Well, we're actually we're dead to sin. We've put that behind us. We're no longer dead. We're actually alive in Christ. It's amazing to think about. And now we're where Christ is. Now, physically, we're right here, right now. But, but we're with Him in spirit. And, and so, He's seated at the right hand of God. And, and if He's there, and our Lord is there, and our Master, our Savior is there, then our minds ought to be there and not on this earth and the earthly things. So, I want to challenge you today to step out of the tomb that maybe you've created in your own life and step into life. Now, what kind of tomb am I talking about? There's like a commonality we all have, and that's this. We all want to be happy. Now, you might say in a different words, you want to be content, you want joy, you want peace, you want something like that, but we're all in this pursuit of happiness. There are books written about, there are movies out there, there's all kinds of, of different theories of ways to gain happiness. We're in this pursuit of happiness to some degree, Right? Would you agree with that? People want to be happy. The thing is, we can all agree with that, right? We all want to be happy. But the thing we can't agree on is how to get happiness. And what happiness looks like for me might look completely different for you. And so we have different ways in which we design our life so that we can be happy. And that creates, in a sense, a tomb around us. And so we think to ourselves, this is how I'm going to be happy, and we pursue that thing, and then when that thing doesn't happen, we're like, oh, man, I'm not so happy anymore. I'm going to pursue something else, and then we go and pursue that. And in the U.S., in America, here where we live, we have all types of things to pursue, don't we? And so we just kind of bounce around. So what I want to challenge you to do today is to think about what is around you that you're pursuing. What's the tomb around you? What do you think is going to provide happiness in your life? And can you take some steps out of it and into what will really bring happiness? I'm going to take a look at what that is. We've been studying Matthew 5 through 7 through a a sermon series, and as we come to this point, it really, it's a great way to, to share the gospel, reflect back on the resurrection of Christ, and help us see that really we ought to be focused on what Christ has done for us in the past and what he's doing for us today. 
So here's some things that he has to say to us. One, we need to step out of this tomb, and this is how we do it. One, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. See, the, earth, the world that we live in offers some false security. And he gives us a, a clue as to what that is here when he talks about moths and rust and thieves. Moths will come in and they'll destroy your clothing, right? Um, we today have a lot of, of clothing. Uh, I know I do. I can go into my closet and there's, there's quite, a, quite an arrangement. And I've got clothes for working in. I've got clothes for, for just... Uh, playing in. I got clothes for church. I got, you know, different things, different clothing that I have. And, and oftentimes that, that clothing, uh, it represents a little bit of who I am. And it even helps me find my identity so, somewhat in, in culture, in the world I live in. And, and we put security in that. And we could even take that so far to talk about shelter and those types of things that we find some kind of security in clothing or shelter. Well, then when he talks about rust here, destroying, he's actually talking about a word that's more like eating something. So you can talk about rust that eats metal, or you can talk about mold, or you can even talk about rodents in this. And I think the idea here is Jesus is pointing to the fact that we have a food supply that we tend to put our trust in. Again, we've done a great job of designing equipment and mechanics and those types of things to where we can store up a lot of food today. Back then you'd have grain, and the Bible talks a lot about storing grain. And today we store much more than just grain. You've got refrigerators, freezers just in your own home. You've got pantries with cans in them that can get you quite a while. And then you go into the commercial end, and they're able to store food for quite some time. We've learned to store those things, and then we've learned to store money. Thieves break in and steal. That would be precious metals, perfumes, and things of value then. Today, we we tend to put those very valuable things, maybe a safe in our house, and then we have banks and IRAs and different types of money market accounts that we store money into. Reality is all those things could disappear quickly. Even as good of storage facilities as as we've created, they still can be taken into and gotten rid of. We've done a great job in our society, in our world, learning how to store things. In fact, we're probably overstoring things today. If you're driving around this area, you're starting to notice that there's a lot of storage units popping up more and more, right? Here's, here's some statistics on the U.S. self-storage uh, st- sector here. It's, uh, it's a pretty big, pretty big uh, business. The annual industry revenue is $38 billion, and the number of storage facilities across the U.S. is 45 to 52,000 facilities. That's not storage units. That's facilities. So the total rentable self-storage space is 1.7 billion square feet, which comes to 5.4 square feet per person. That doesn't seem like very much, you know, if you have a lot of things to store. Only 10% of, of Americans are actually using storage. And that's not accounting for, I don't know, um, garages and barns and things like that that we also store things in. But at least 10% of the people in the U.S. are renting at $90 a month to store stuff. And if you've ran across people who have things in storage, usually um, they don't access that storage because they're thinking, well, I know that's in storage, but it's 
It's all the way in the back, and I'd have to empty the storage unit. and get, I'm just not even going to bother with it, right? We have gotten really good at storing stuff. Now, we may have a lot of stuff. The question I have for you is, do you have security? Is that what you're putting your hope and your, your trust in? Hopefully not, because it doesn't provide that The world just offers a false security in the things that we can accumulate, but Jesus goes on to point out that we need to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves, they simply can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, and this is where he really gets us, where your treasure is, well, that's where your heart will also be. Now, heaven offers eternal security. And here's what's going on, because I think we can begin to, to visualize something different here. We talk about storing stuff on this earth, right? And, and we talk about the storage units and the things we've accumulated in our home and all of that. And so we might think, oh, are we storing up something physical in heaven? And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think what Jesus is talking about is, is where is our security? Is our security in what we've accumulated on this earth? And yeah, it is. Are you thinking that your security is in heaven with the, the merit badges that you're earning or the mansion you might be building or those types of things? No. Our security is Christ. He's the one that we're supposed to put our trust in. He's the one we're supposed to treasure, not the stuff. And so Jesus is is demonstrating to us and and showing us right here on earth, we, we put so much into what this world has to offer. He says you need to take your heart and your mind and focus on what Christ has to offer. Focus on what God has to offer. Now as he's teaching this, he hasn't gone to the the cross yet. I understand that, but he is going to, and then he's going to teach this later, or the church is going to teach this later to people to say, hey, we need to focus on what Christ has done for us. That's where our hope is. That's where our security is. Keep your minds fixed on what is above, not on the earthly things. Where your treasure is, well, then your heart and your decision-making will all fall around that. If your treasure is on the earth, then a lot of your decision is going to be about the stuff that's on the earth. If your treasure is in heaven, which is Christ, then your decision is going to be a lot about Christ and what He says. Here's some great things that he said to us. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money, the same concept we're talking about in this passage. He says, be satisfied, be content, be happy with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. And whatever circumstance you're in, I know a lot of times we like to change our circumstance to make it better, and we think if we do, then man, life will get a lot better, right? He says, no, be happy. He'll never leave us or abandon us. In the Old Testament, he says something very similar to Israel. He says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid of your enemy. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He promised Israel that. Now, Israel had some some rocky times, and there were times it feels like God leaves. He never did. He just disciplined them to bring them back to himself because he doesn't want them to leave. God will never leave. He'll never abandon. And that's true for you too. Even though at times you may feel like it. So step out of the tomb. Now, you may ask the question, all right, well, how do I know if my life is really fixed on the things I want or fixed on the things God wants? And I think that's what Jesus 
tackles in the next statement when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. That's an interesting phrase. It's like here's our eye, and it begins to illuminate, and if it illuminates a really healthy light, then that light will shine into the rest of our body. But if it's dimly lit or if it's dark, then that light won't shine into the rest of our body. He doesn't actually say it's, it's letting light in. He just says it shines. And so I think it's, it's more of an indicator. And he goes on to say, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. How is that even possible? Well, here's, I think, a way in which it's possible. A healthy eye can say this, God created me, or a healthy person will say this, God created me, therefore God knows what's good for me. And you trust that and you believe in that. God created me. God knows my ins and my outs. God knows everything about me. God knows what's good for me. Well, the opposite is true then too. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, by the way, light, darkness, doesn't really work. How deep is that darkness? An unhealthy eye will say this, God created me, but I know what's best for me. That was kind of like that video we saw earlier, where the guy would come out and he would say something like, uh, I, I want to be here to help Jesus, I'm going to make him more successful, I've learned how to be successful on this earth, I'm going to, I'm going to help him out. That's, that's not what Jesus needed. Jesus didn't need help, he's God after all. What he needs is people to come and say, oh, you're God, and I'm going to do things your way because you are God. But so many of us are tempted to say, well, God created me, and God created this, this plan of salvation. God, God gave us his word and his truth, but, but let's be honest. I really know what's best for me in this situation. Then if God would just tweak his plan a little bit to fit my wants and desires, well, then life would get so much better. That's kind of the way we think, isn't it? At least we struggle with that. Well, that's an unhealthy eye. So if your eye is fixed on the things that you think are going to bring happiness in your life, it's going to be unhealthy. But if your eye is fixed on what God says, well, then it's going to be healthy. Now, you might say, well, just because I do, I'm going to go back. You might say, just because I do what I want, it doesn't mean I'm really full of darkness. I mean, that's kind of a harsh word, right? Just because I, I do the things I like to do. Well, it's interesting what God has to say about that. Here's some things. Isaiah 64, 6, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The things we try to do in order to impress God, he says they're filthy rags. That's kind of harsh. So let's go with a little easier verse, Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's really not an easier verse. We might, this might sound a little nicer. But the reality is we're all separated from God because of sin. And what sin is, is disobedience to God. It's, it's not doing things His way. It's doing things our way. That's, that's sin. And so, so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God has this level of perfection, and no matter how hard we work, we can never get to it on our own. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if, if those are things you struggle to accept, you're probably saying something like this in your heart, and here he says a fool, which is a little hard to swallow, but, but from God's point of view, let's look at it from his point of view and see what he's saying. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, or I don't like the way God has this, or I don't like, and we just argue with God. So the fool says in his heart, in some way or another, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. The eye is an indicator. What are you focused on? 
Are you focused on the here and now and what this world has to offer to bring you happiness? Or are you focused on what God says? Now, you can read all this and think, well, that's kind of depressing. In fact, some people have. In fact, I've heard some people say that can't even be true. In fact, I think what God really wants for us is to be really happy by convincing ourselves we're happy or pursuing our own dreams and our own desires. But that's not what God says. God says we put Him first, and then He fills our life. He fills our heart with the joy and contentment and happiness. And so some over the years have said, you know what we need to do is just do a little of both. We're all about balance, right? Let's, let's do a little bit of what the world has to offer, and let's do a little bit about what God has to offer. And I think this is where this passage really hits home. Don't kid yourself. Only God gives life. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He can't ride the fence. You can't do both. You can't be a slave to both. You can only be a slave to one. Is it going to be God or money? You say, well, I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm a slave to myself. That's the world. Are you a slave to God? Do you follow Him? Is He your master? Is He your Lord? Or are you a slave to yourself or to the world? Do you think your way is the best way? Do you think the world's way is the best way? Or do you agree and submit and say, yeah, God's way is the best way? All of the paths to life contradict God's path. Now, I hope you understand and hear this clearly. When we talk about life, we're talking about eternal life and how we can have a relationship with God Almighty, the one who created us. As we go through this life, there's going to be times where it's confusing and we're going to always have this battle. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're always going to have this flesh and it's going to struggle and it's going to want to please itself and it's always going to want to go off track and go in a different direction than God wants us to go. But there's a point where you, you make a decision in your life. If I, am I going to trust what God has to say or am I going to trust myself and my ways or my logic, my thinking or my heart and what it feels? And what God's Word says is we need to trust His plan. And his salvation says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. We'll have eternal life. And we'll get to know this awesome creator, this God who created all things and created us. Now we get to have eternal life and spend all eternity with him in heaven. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And honestly, there's times I look at the life we have on this earth and what's going on in the world, and I'm like, man, I hope, hope that comes sooner than later, right? Because the life after is it's beyond imagination. And I think the biggest thing that I look forward to in going to heaven is seeing Jesus Christ face to face and being without a doubt 100% content and happy and know that I'm exactly where God is and God wants me to be. There's nothing greater. People will sometimes talk about heaven like, oh, I can't wait to get up there and start golfing and I can't wait to go skiing. I can't wait to look at my mansion. Again, that's just a selfish thought. Heaven is the place where we get to see our God face to face, see our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And it's beyond anything we can ever imagine or think of because there we are exactly the way He created us to be. And we are content, we are happy. And that's something that we just don't get to sense here because we have this, this sinful flesh that wants to feed itself on this world, which will never bring happiness. God's path is narrow, but here's the cool part. It's guaranteed. All other paths will try to tell you that they can lead you to God. You can do all these different works. But when you get there and you're standing before God and you're saying to Him things like, look at all these things I did for you, God's going to look and say, well, it doesn't cut it. It doesn't make it. There's only one way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he, he pours himself out for us. And when he went to the cross and when he rose from the dead, he comes and presents himself to God the Father, the judge. And God the Father says, this is the sacrifice I accept. There's no other sacrifice except Jesus Christ that I accept. That's a really cool word. You can use it if you want to. I like to say it. Just, it makes me sound smarter. But that, I just like the meaning behind it. It's propitiation. And what the word means is that, it, is that God is satisfied with Christ. Okay, it's not that it was just a, an attempt to satisfy God. It means that he is fully satisfied with the offering of Jesus Christ, his son. That's the only way. If you go and you present your good works, God's going to say that's not good enough. But if you go and you present the works of Jesus Christ, his son, he says, yes, that is what I accept. You see, God's path is narrow, but it's guaranteed. And so you ought to choose that path. Don't you want the guaranteed path? You can try as, as, as much as you want on your own. But it's not going to work. He tells us later on in Matthew seven fourteen how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. And there are few in this room who have found it. There's probably some in this room that have not found it yet. And you may be back there, and you may be a skeptic, you may be a critic, and you may be saying, I don't know if that's true. You may be saying, ah, my, that's as hard to believe in as, as Obama or Trump. Like, I, I can't believe in either one of those guys. How can I believe in Jesus? Well, he's, he's worth it. You, you have a choice. The first gospel that was preached, at least after Jesus Christ went to heaven, Peter got up and he, he talked to the people who nailed him to the cross. He says, you guys rejected Jesus Christ. He has come to life and he is offering salvation to you. And that day, 3,000 people made a public decision to follow Jesus Christ. And since that time, many more have followed as well. Have you made a decision to follow Christ? Is he the one that you're going to follow? Are you going to walk through that gate or are you still saying, no, I'm going to do it my way? And you may leave like that, uh, like that video where the guy was upset, slammed his door, drove off, and just say, I can't do it. But I'd plead with you, please consider Christ if you haven't. Step out of the tomb that you've created in this, this world. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm going to find happiness on my own. I'm going to find joy on my own. I'm going to find life on my own. Step out of that tomb and step into the life that Christ has offered you. I can't imagine trying to do it on my own. Now, I've known Christ for many years. It's hard for me to, to, 
to fathom how other people try to find it on their own. But I also know pride. And pride is powerful. And for us to admit that we can't do something takes a lot of humility. But that's what God asks for, a humble and contrite heart, to come before him and say, I can't do this. I need your son, Jesus Christ. Step out of the tomb and into life. So I'm going to challenge you to respond here at the end. You're going to have a couple minutes. As I throw out these questions, I want to give you a couple minutes to reflect on them. Uh, I'm going to make myself available here. We have some other leaders and elders in the church that will also come up. If we have um, you know, more than, than a couple up here, they'll join with you as well and, and offer to pray with you if you'd like to. If you want to respond to this, if you want to make a public response to this and say, yeah, I want to make a commitment to follow Christ, then we'd love to have you respond. You may also be a follower of Jesus Christ already, and you're saying, man, I'm, just, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to believe that. Or I'm struggling not so much to believe it, I'm struggling to live it out. And I like prayer. Then we'd like to pray with you as, as well. So here's the questions. One, are you in relationship with Jesus? And do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe his way is the only way? Or are you still kind of fighting that? No, I can do it on my own. Have you submitted to him and said, no, he is, his way is the only way? If no, okay, if your answer is no, but you'd like to, then I, again, I'd like to invite you to the front. I'd love to pray with you. If you have more questions, I'll have my Bible. I can just go through some Scripture together with you and pray with you. And, and, uh, and it'd be awesome. If you want to make a commitment to follow Christ today, man, let's celebrate that. Okay? If you say, yes, I've already believed that. I've placed my faith in Christ, but you go, keep going back to your old ways of trusting in yourself. And hear this, you know, we do struggle with that. But if you continue to go back and trust in yourself, then we're here to pray with you. You're like, I, I want to I break out of this, this feeling that I've got to please God with my own works. Or I've got to make create my own happiness or whatever it may be. If you just feel like, I've got to break out of that, then love to pray with you regarding that as well. So we're going to go again forward, have some, some music playing, and then the worship team is going to come up. And that invitation will continue while we sing the last song together. We give all the praise to, to God for what He's done. I hope you leave this place knowing. Now, uh, you may answer either one of those and say, well, okay, yes, I believe. I've already dealt with some of these things, and I'm, I'm continuing to struggle through them, but I know, I know I've got, you know, discipleship or life groups around me that help me through it and all of that, uh, then what I would encourage you to do right where you're at is just pray for people who, who may be trying to decide these things. And, uh, and think of them and how they're growing. And maybe it's a loved one or maybe somebody else that you're dear to you know are struggling with some of these things. But we want to end that way and then, and then go from this place celebrating because God is not dead. He is alive. He is living. He is working in the hearts of people. And I trust and pray He's working in your heart this morning. So think about that.